If this is your first time with us, we're delighted that you're here this morning, and we, are, we just started a series last week called Cross Training, and uh, we're looking at five steps to a stronger faith, because every follower of Jesus Christ is in cross training. Take up your cross and follow me. Last week, we talked about eating healthy, which was actually an exploration of feasting on God's Word and spiritually feeding ourselves on on his message to us. Today we're going to talk about sticking to a regimen. Now, a regimen is not a word we use too regularly. It's probably because we don't like what it means. A regimen has been described as a systematic plan designed to improve and maintain some aspect of health in an individual. Could be the regimen of a diet or therapy treatments or prescribed medication. It is a regular course of action, a routine involving strenuous training. We've got to stick to a routine, stick to a regimen spiritually. Now, let's pretend for just a moment that it's popping popcorn night at your home, and you're sprawled out on the couch watching your favorite television show, munching on that fluffy delight, and there's a knock at your door, and you go and answer, and there stands three people from the U.S. Olympic Committee, and they come in, and they say that with all of their records and all their resources and the fact that they have access to the DNA of every human being in America, that they have discovered that you have the DNA capacity to be the best marathon runner ever, and they would like for you to train for the next Olympics. The popcorn in your mouth gets dry and stale real quick as you contemplate that, and you swallow, and you think, Oh, my goodness, and then your mind turns to the vision of in four years, you're standing on the center stage of that platform. The crowd is cheering. There's a gold medal around your neck, and you that's a glorious picture that is suddenly shattered by the fact that you will be standing in front of television cameras, and the world will be viewing you in some form of spandex, and the picture is, <laughs> is lost in that moment. And, and then you realize then you realize you couldn't run a marathon if your life depended on it. You can't even run to the mailbox and back without oxygen. How in the world is this going to be possible? And you know at that moment that if you're going to take the challenge, it's going to require a strict regimen. Your life is going to change. You've got 48 months to get ready to be a world-class athlete, and you're beginning as a couch potato. It'll take a strict regimen of exercise, diet, education, and specialized training should you take that goal. But it will also take a strict regimen if you and I take the goal of becoming the best that we can be, if we want our faith to grow in Christ, if we will step out and say, Lord, make me the person that you have created me to be. You know my DNA. You know who I am. You know what I'm capable of becoming. Lord, help me to take on that regimen to become the man or the woman you've called me to be. Now, folks, if you were going to start this marathon uh, practice, uh, you you cannot do it tomorrow. Uh, It it cannot be when you get around to it. It it, it cannot be the Scarlett O'Hara approach to discipline as she ends the movie Gone with the Wind with the whimsical line, tomorrow's another day. 
Tomorrow may be another day, but if, if that's your view of starting a regimen, you, you've got it all wrong. If it starts tomorrow, it's not a regimen. It has to start now. When you make the decision, it starts immediately. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom, and the opening verses describe the purpose of his book. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, this is what he says, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. Solomon says the wise follower of Jesus Christ, the wise person who walks in this world is the one who has a regimen, who is disciplined. An undisciplined life is an unwise life. And developing good habits in every area of our life is important. When we are young, our parents try to instill good habits in us. Pick up your clothes, clean your plate, do it right or don't do it all. When we grow older, the habit, we try to create positive good habits as well. Don't be late for, for things. Be where you are going to be. Keep your word. Do not let the gas gauge get too low before you fill up. Be generous in helping others. Think of your family before yourself, and on the list goes. Good habits. Now, God wants us to cultivate good spiritual habits, and those godly habits require as much discipline as any other habit that we may form. Sometimes, and to be honest with you, I really think it takes more discipline to create the spiritual habits. And why good spiritual habits? Because it will help you grow in your faith. So, let's work on developing a good spiritual regimen and stick to it. Now, how are habits formed? I bet you've read before that, that a habit can be formed in 21 days. Well, that might be true. But, but more recent research has suggested that it takes a lot longer than 21 days to form a habit. Sometimes it can take up to three times that amount. It all depends on the person and the need and the conviction about that needed change. Uh, and, and did you know this, that a habit really is a three-step process in the brain? Number one, there is a trigger in the brain that tells it to go into automatic mode and let the baby behavior unfold. Step two is the routine or the behavior itself. And step three is the reward for the brain. That, that your brain likes something as a result of that routine, which keeps the routine or the habit going. Now, now let's just take an example. Let, let's talk about brushing your teeth. What's the trigger? Well, it's, it's probably morning breath. You, you wake up in the morning and your mouth has that pasty feel and, 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 and so you want to brush your teeth. When you're brushing your teeth, you go into this automatic mode. Now, studies show that when you are in the same environment over and over and over again, that, that when you build into this routine or this habit, your, your brain just kind of goes into automatic drive and, and the rest of your brain rests or thinks about a gazillion other things. I bet you don't think about brushing your teeth when you're brushing them. You just do that. 
But if you, if you noticed, you probably put the toothpaste on the same way, the same amount, the same movement every time. You probably brush your teeth in the same way. You probably rinse your mouth out the same way. You probably stand the same way at the sink. You, you do all these things without thinking because it has become a routine, a habit, and your brain takes over. By the way, the part of the brain that controls your habits is an altogether different part of the brain than makes decisions. Interesting that when something becomes a habit, the decision part of the brain just takes a rest or starts thinking about other things that need to be done because it's a habit, it's a routine. Advertisers spend hours studying and trying to tailor their ads to the habit part of your brain, not the decision part because they know if buying their product becomes a habit, you will do it without thinking without making a decision. Research has also concluded that it is never too late in our lives to break a habit or to create a habit. Habits are flexible, and that's good news. Um, don't, don't, don't tell me it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks because research says differently. You never get to a point in your life where you can't stop doing something or start doing something that's good for you. And this is what else research shows us, that peer pressure, one way or the other, has a huge impact on our regimens and our habits. So, if you're trying to create a good habit, or for that matter, if you're trying to break a bad one, having others around you that will hold you accountable, that will encourage you in the process, is the best way to do it. Another reason why God created the church God didn't just say, hey, be my follower and good luck. He said, be my follower, be a part of my body, because the body of Christ, the church, comes alongside us and helps hold us accountable. We help each other achieve these regimens that make all the difference in the world. So, how do we begin to develop a spiritual regimen? Well, there are a lot of ways. But uh, and, and no two of them are exactly right because no two people are exactly like, and so it varies from person to person. But let me just give you a few thoughts this morning on developing a re- regimen, a discipline, and how that would apply to our spiritual life. Here's the first thing. Understand. You have to understand what God expects of you, this, this vision of what God has for you, this way that God has created you. You, you have to have an understanding before you can go any farther. Now, last week, we we talked about how important the Word of God is. I can't overemphasize that. You can't build a spiritual regimen if you don't know what kind of a regimen God expects from you. Now, let's say you're the one that the Olympic Committee has identified as the person most qualified for that marathon. Before you start into any plans or training exercises or you buy any equipment to help you wouldn't you say this <clears throat> i don't know where to begin on pre- on planning and preparing and training myself to be a marathon runner I-, I wouldn't know step one so i need to talk to the experts i need to talk to people who have run marathons in the olympics before i need to talk to the best trainers in the country who train athletes to run the marathons because that's where i'm going to learn what steps i should take first and where i begin this process now you you would all say that. That's just obvious. So why is it not that obvious that if you want to become the best disciple, the best spiritual person you could be, that you would start by listening to God? It's amazing how people will speak so authoritatively about God 
without ever consulting God himself. Oh, the God I serve is like this, or I don't believe God would do that. I believe God would do this. I don't really care what you think. You shouldn't care what I think. It only matters what God has communicated to us. Before you speak about God and His Word, you might want to let God speak to you through His Word. That's the only way to achieve spiritual understanding. I want to know what God expects of me before I begin the process of spiritual discipline. I don't want to assume that God has certain plans that He may not have. Listening to his voice, knowing that his is the one voice I will obey, makes all the difference. Hiru Onoda died this year at the age of 91. And you say, who is that? He was the very last World War II Japanese soldier, officer as a matter of fact, to surrender at the conclusion of the war. He finally surrendered in 1974. He had been hiding out in the Philippine mountains because he was not convinced that World, that World War II was in fact over because his commanding officer had told him, we will come get you. We will tell you when the war is over. And he had never heard from his commanding officer. Leaflets were dropped in, in the mountains of the Philippines. Family members were brought to the Philippines who over loudspeakers communicated the message, come home, the war is over. He chalked all of that up to propaganda because he had never heard from his commanding officer. When a Japanese hiker who was going through the Philippine mountains stumbled onto the man and they had this conversation, he tried to convince him that the war was over. He would not believe it. He said, until I hear from my commanding officer to come home. And so this young hiker went back to Japan, talked to the government. The government looked for the for his former major, found him. He was now a bookseller. They sent him back to the Philippines. He got to see him face to face and there brought him to a point of surrender, and that, after 29 years, was the first time that Onoda came down out of the mountains and went back home, surrendered himself. Now you say, wow, what a waste of 29 years. Yeah, that, that's true. But what devotion to the voice of authority. Oh, that we in the body of Christ would be as committed to listen to the voice of God as he speaks through his word and shut out every other voice. Here's the second thing. Once you understand what God wants of you, once I understand this picture, this image that God has for me, then I have to decide whether or not I'm going to step into that role, whether I really want to step into the training to get that done. And, and can I tell you that I think any decision like this has to be an intellectual one more than an emotional one. Emotions tend to be roller coasters, all right? And, and when, you, when you make your decisions based on the ups and downs of a roller coaster, you're going to make decisions that you will regret. Let's say you're looking for a newer home, a newer house. The realtor has taken you to see all these places, and you, you've given them the size of the house and the budget you can afford, and you've looked at several of them, and you're on the way to take a look at the next one, and you see a house for sale. Oh, it's beautiful. 
And you say, we want to see that house. And the realtor says, well, I'm not sure that one's going to fit you. We want to see that house. And you walk in the door and you say, oh, this is perfect. This is beautiful. Now, it's got a lot more square footage than what you really need. It's got a huge yard that you don't really want. And the mortgage is going to be incredibly high. But, oh, it is so lovely. And so you buy it. About a year later, you've spent every spare moment you have mowing that crazy yard, and it takes a whole lot longer to clean that house than you ever anticipated because of all the extra square footage. And because the mortgage has pushed your budget to the very nth degree, you can't afford to do anything else. How do you think you're going to feel about that decision about a year later? Because it was made on the spur of the moment with the emotions, not with the intellect. Now, your emotions need to be engaged in your spiritual life. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying when you make a choice to follow Jesus Christ and step into a regimen of discipline, that begins with the mind. It is an intellectual decision. I believe that you have been created by God with a divine purpose to serve and honor Him first. He knows your DNA. You have a unique role to fill. But when you follow him with your emotions only, it will be like a roller coaster ride or a yo-yo. One day you're excited about your faith because you feel good, but the next day you don't even want to think about your faith because you're down in the dumps. That's not the way faith is designed to work. Our faith in God, this, this cross-training business of taking up our cross and following him is a decision that we make regardless of how we feel on any particular day. It's an act of devotion, like a sacrifice. It's an intellectual decision to, to make a commitment, like we make in a marriage. Is marriage a, an act of love? Sure it is. But it's also an intellectual decision that you're choosing to make this person the most important person in your life for the rest of your life. I don't fish often. But when I do, I like to fish by using a bobber on my line. Okay, that's a simple way to fish, I know. But, I, you know, whether it's bluegill or red ear or sunfish or crappie, you know, I, I just love watching that bobber. When you drop your bait into the, to the lake or the pond and that bobber sits there and all of a sudden you see that bobber just gently dance on the water, you don't pull the line. When you see it start making just a tiny little circle, you don't do anything with the rod. But when that bobber disappears beneath the water and you can see it start to go out from you, that's when you jerk the line because the fish at that point in time has taken the bait and swallowed it. You and I need to realize that we will never be who God wants us to be if we dance around the edges and we just, edges and we just nibble at the bait. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means you take the challenge hook, line, and sinker or you'll never grow deeper in the faith. I have long been inspired by the life and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the leading ministers in Germany before World War II, and because he opposed Hitler, his life was on the line. In 1939, before the war actually broke out, friends and Christians in other places of the world were able to get him out of Germany. They brought him to America under the pretense of, of a tour. Now, he thought he was going to be touring America, and he was, but the real, the real motive behind it was to save his life. 
They were going to keep him here in the States until after the war, and it was safe to go home to his native country. Dietrich Bonhoeffer hadn't been in New York but just a short time until he was restless. He couldn't rest in his hotel room. He couldn't, he couldn't come to grips with what he was doing. He would go for walks at night after he would speak and lecture. And he finally came to the conclusion through his prayers and through his study that God didn't want him in in here. He had to go home and share the fate of his congregation in Germany. And so he did. He returned shortly after he arrived to the United States and, and continued to minister and preach and teach and was eventually arrested and placed in a prison camp. Bonhoeffer, they say, from those who were in the camp with him, was the most upbeat positive, joyful man that you could find. He was always teaching. He was ministering. He was helping people. He was serving people. He was at the height of his ministry in the most devastating of circumstances. He was eventually executed by the Gestapo three weeks before the Allies liberated Berlin. The camp doctor made this observation. He said, in, all, in the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was even gracious and helpful to his captors. That's the kind of spirit I'm talking about. This, this decision that says, I will submit to the will of God for my life. Third thing we see here is this whole concept of discipline. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, or you can watch on the screen, or you can check it out on your uh, uh, phone or your tablet there, whatever you have. I I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation this morning, and in, in verse 24, this is what Paul says. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it to win an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. I think when Paul wrote those words to the Corinthians, he had in mind the Isthmian games that were held in Corinth every three years. As a matter of fact, I understand if you could visit the ancient streets of Corinth today, you would see the streets where the runners ran. You would see the starting blocks still in the cobblestones of the street where they began the race. And what they ran for was a, a crown of pine boughs woven together. Now, you know, you know as well as I do that you, pine boughs will dry out very quickly. The needles will fall off. You don't have much left. And so it was really the honor of winning the game, the bragging rights of winning the game. It wasn't about the crown itself. But Paul says we, we don't have a fading crown. We have a prize that is eternal, the crown of life. The Corinthians to whom Paul was writing knew that every athlete who participated in the Isthmian Games had to take an oath that they had been training for at least 10 months and that they had given up certain foods in their diet to enable them to endure the race. They subjected themselves to a rather rigorous discipline, or in other words, to a regimen that would help them win. A winning discipline or a discipline that grows our faith is never a fast process. It is a patient process. 
but the end result is, well, it's greater than taking a city. I like what Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, 32. He said, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Spiritual disciplines, the, the writer of Proverbs says, is, is more important than the greatest conquest of this world. Now, I'm amazed at just how we justify our lack of spiritual discipline. It's as though we view the commands of God as applying to everybody else, but, you know, I think God will cut me some slack if I don't do everything just the way I should. God will surely make an exception for my outbursts of anger. And the Lord knows I don't gossip. Everything I tell is the truth. Obviously, God understands I don't have time to read his word, but he's not disappointed that I'm not reading it. Uncle Sam squanders our tax dollars, so therefore I'm justified in cheating on my return. God will not blame me for that affair. After all, God brought this person into my life. It's simply inevitable that it would happen. Such rationalizations flow from unbridled immaturity and a lack of discipline in our lives. God has called us to discipleship, and that demands maturity, that we grow in His faith. So what kind of a regimen do we need? Well, I don't have time to deal with it closely today, but we'll talk about these a little bit more as we go through the series. But can I give you just three of what I think are some of the toughest disciplines for us to to develop in the, in the Christian life, prayer, giving, and fasting. And, and I think these disciplines are hard for us because we, we, we don't view their purpose the way we ought to. We think that prayer is, is to keep God happy and, and for His benefit, and that giving, that's to keep the church happy and for the church's benefit, and fasting, that's for, well, who knows who, who's, who's that that's for. And, and instead of looking at it as, as how it affects others, we need to look at the fact that God gave us these disciplines to impact us. It's a regimen that makes us better. We're the ones that get the reward when we do it right. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, he said, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. I can tell you that when I pray like I su I'm supposed to pray, when I have a connection with God. It changes my heart. I know that when I fast, and I don't do it very often, I will freely confess, I don't fast like, like, like I probably should. But when I do, it changes my heart. When I give with the right attitude, it changes my heart. You, you see, it's not about doing it for something else or someone else. It, it's about the change that happens in me. That's the discipline. So, so let me give you just a couple thoughts here to help you. Pray, fast, and give from the heart. God isn't interested in flowery prose or poetic phrases. He will not be impressed by your ability to turn a phrase in your prayers or by what you have in your bank account and your ability to write a check. He just wants to know that it comes from your heart. Pray, fast, and give with trust. Do you, do you really trust God with the circumstances of your life? I mean, does it make all the difference in the world? You know, one of my favorite stories is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, who when they stood before the king because they wouldn't pray to him, made this response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. 
and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. It's that kind of commitment. In this case, God delivered them. On other occasions, God did not intervene into human history and preserve the faithful. You see, the Christian life isn't so much about trusting God to answer. It's trusting God no matter how he answers. That's the kind of devotion he desires in us. Love the one to whom you pray fast and give. If I ask you for the opposite of love this morning, would most of you say hate? If, if that's your answer, it's the wrong answer. The opposite of love is indifference. What does it say about my love for God when I'm indifferent about my prayer life and about my giving life? Let us Love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and demonstrate that with our disciplines. Folks, this is not to make you feel guilty. Can I tell you, I struggle with the same areas in my own personal life. It's always, I'm always having to deal with the temptation not to do the things we're talking about. But if we don't ever talk about it, and we don't ever work on it together, we don't ever hold each other accountable, we'll never step into a regimen and stick to it. In Discipleship Journal, Carol Mayhall tells about a woman who went to a diet center to lose weight, and the trainer that she was going to be working with, first thing he did, he took her to a mirror, and he took a special pen, and on the mirror drew the outline of what she should look like. After weeks and months of training, dieting, exercising, all the things she was supposed to do, she stepped in front of that mirror, and on that day, she looked like the outline he had drawn. It was a day of victory for her. Can I, can I remind you, God has an outline of what you and your life are supposed to be. And the greatest joy in your life is when you can look at the outline and say, that's who I'm striving to become. God's given us a regimen. Let's stick to it and make the most of who he has created us to be and run the race with faithfulness.